Before we jump into First John today, just to, something just to think about um, that we should start thinking of ourselves as a church family, like using the word family. So what that means is um, the the one that's <clears throat> the one that's you know you, you always have that that uh, that uncle or that aunt that's kind of out there that you know you got to invite over to your house because they're they're related to you but you don't really want to hang out with them but you know you're supposed to. Um, we may have some of those. Maybe I'm that guy, you know, for all I know. But maybe we have some of those guys here, um, and guys and girls here. Um, and, and this is really going to get into what we're going to talk about today. Um, but we need to love every person in the, in the family. Um, so that means uh, try to have dinner with people in the family. You know, pick out people in the family every Sunday or throughout the week. You're going to call them or send them an email. Or if you have Facebook, you're going to Facebook them. And you're going you're gonna to find ways that you can get together outside of seeing them Sunday morning and outside of seeing them at your community groups, but really start trying to try to build up into this church that we have this big, huge family. So I just want to encourage you to, to start thinking about that. Um, we're starting a new book, which is First uh, John. We, we just finished First Timothy last week, and we're going to start First John. And this is how we're going to kind of do First John today is um, we're going to take a huge kind of bird's eye view at the book. Uh, I, what we do week in, week out is that we, we start at verse 1 and we just we go verse by verse, you know, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen. So we just go verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. Um, but that's not what we're going to do today. We're going to start that next week. So before we go verse by verse like we always do, um, I want to kind of give a big bird's eye view so that you understand um, who John is, why he wrote and all those kind of stuff. Um, give you the big picture of First John so that when we're going verse by verse, it all kind of makes sense. So that's, that's really my goal today is, is the big picture, um, big picture thing of First John. Now, what can happen is um, it can start feeling like, because you know, I've, I've only got a couple pages here, and it can start feeling more academic um, and more like I'm lecturing you, but that's not what we're doing. We're not in class, and, and you're not my students. So... Um, I've, I've desired and, and I prayed for uh, God to help that this not feel really academic, but feel like a sermon and that you wouldn't just learn information and knowledge, but that you're going to be challenged, um, even in an introduction of First John. So um, let me pray and, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Lord, I, uh, I've, I've done work, I've prepared, and I've got, I've got things here that I, I feel throughout this week that you've wanted me to say. But God, if you have other plans, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, lead me to say what you want. I, uh, I confess that I need your help today, as, as every day. Lord, I pray that um, everything I say, everything I do, all that uh, is communicated here this morning would be for your glory. I ask for help, Lord. I pray for those that are here, God, that they would um, they would be challenged to walk deeper with you, that they would hear your word this morning as we look at uh, the book of First John, and they would examine their own lives and examine their own hearts and see where it is that they don't want to be obedient to you, and that they would, by the Spirit, put to death that sin. And as they flee that sin, Lord, that they would pursue Christ in their life. Pursue the depths and love of Christ in their life. I praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest to us, and we have seen it, and we have testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which was made manifest, that which we have heard, seen and heard, and we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. I am writing to you so that your joy may be complete. And this is the message that we proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, then we lie, and we do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin. Then we deceive ourselves and his truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's First John chapter 1. And I'm pretty sure I might have messed one place up. Um, but here's, here's the reason why we're doing that. And Tim kind of talked about it. We have um, a big goal that we want to accomplish whenever we're going through the, the book of First John. Um, every two weeks you're going to get a card. Um, and basically every two weeks we're going to ask you to memorize ten verses. Um, and the entire time we're going through this book, you'll have accomplished memorizing the book of First John. Now, here's, here's the cool thing. Um, for those of you that are extremely busy, um, we have, you know, this is plan A. This is memorize all the ten verses. But then there's this plan B for people like my wife. Um, who just gave birth to her fourth child and has you know, no sleep and things like that, um, then there's this plan B, which is an amazing idea, I think. Um, instead of memorizing all ten verses at a time each two weeks, there's just a couple verses that are key out of those ten that, that we're going to ask you to memorize. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a whole different kind of thing. For those that have crazy lifestyles, that are, you know, they're running, their minds are running crazy, you have plan B. For those of you that, that can do it and then you go plan A. And so this is how I want to encourage you to maybe think about this. Um, everybody this week, starting today, we should all start with plan A. We should all just start with it. And if we can't get it, but we should all start with it. If we can't get it, then we can switch over. But we'll know. And here's the other cool thing that I think is really neat. Um, we're going to do this every two weeks. So let's say this two weeks, things are crazy. Then maybe you should go with plan B. But then, you know, the next two weeks are going to be great. And you switch over. So we don't want this to feel like it's some kind of legalistic thing where once you lock in on plan A, you're locked in on plan A for, the, for all five chapters. But what we want you to do is examine who, where you are and who you are and how things are rolling for you. And each two weeks decide, which one do I want to, do I want to challenge myself with? Do I want to challenge myself with plan A or plan B? Um, because the goal is that you're going to get the word of God into your heart. That's the goal. The Word of God is living and active. The Word of God tells us that it teaches us and it corrects us. It tells us that um, if we store it up in our heart that we won't sin. So the goal is not to be legalistic or for you to try to say, you know, I'm going to do it all no matter what. I'm going I'm to destroy myself. I I'm not going to do anything else but just memorize all five chapters of First John. Um, you know, be realistic and just go with either one. But let's all start with A today. Let's just see what we can do. Um, and the goal, like I said, is for you to get into the Word um, and have the word stored up in your heart so that um, God's using his word to change you. God's using his word to change you. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in just a little bit. Um, so First John, this was probably written by, almost everyone agrees that it was written by the disciple John. Uh, the same one that wrote the Gospel of John, First, Second, Third John, and also Revelation. Um, he probably wrote it from the town of Ephesus more than likely in the early 90s. Um, and he, was, he wrote this book to Christians. Um, he wrote it to Christians, not non-Christians. And if you read it, um, it's got this wonderful mix. It's not, he doesn't really... You know, the book of Ephesians is kind of known as the first three chapters are doctrine, the last three chapters are application. Well, John takes those ideas of the, theology and application and just mixes them the entire time. It's just back and forth mixed everywhere with teaching and admonition over and over. So you're reading doctrine and then he tells you, you know, how to live it. And reading So um, that's the way it's written. So as you read it, just realize um, that he's going to continually challenge you almost every other verse as, as he writes to us. Um, and there is, in the letter of 1 John, a dominant theme. There's a big, huge theme that's kind of put on display. So as, you're, as we're studying verse by verse, know that there's a huge theme that he's trying to always um, communicate, which is assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. Um, but here is, I think that it's pretty, something pretty amazing. Um, I was reading a commentator, and he brought this out, and it's just uh, amazing. Um, most of us, when we think of, 
assurance of salvation, we think it's because God um, subjectively kind of gives us this assurance that we have. And whenever we have this assurance, we just try to um, see it in our lives. God, I just want to feel like I know I'm saved. And so God, give me that feeling of assurance. And so we spend our time trying to look in and and find this subjective assurance that we have. Um, And that's that is true. I mean, I believe that God does that. Um, but this is what he says, uh, the commentator talking about First John. There, there, there isn't a way that he subjectively tells us. Um, primarily, he does this, and we know it through imputed righteousness given to us. And so we have this subjective assurance that we, that we know that he gives to us. But in the letter of First John, one thing that's kind of drawn out is there is an objective way for us to have assurance. An objective way. Instead of looking in and trying to explore this this feeling of assurance that we want from God, um, he tells us that there is an objective way, which is that we should see love in our lives. We should visually be able to see ourselves expressing love to people with our hands. Um, and when we see ourselves loving other people by by physical means, by giving and helping and serving, when we see that that objective way is, is one way that we can know that we are saved. So, um, and I think that that's probably better. Um, so don't just say, you know, I don't know if I'm saved. I got to, uh, I got to search within and keep, keep diving into the depths of my hearts to find this feeling of assurance and always praying. He's saying, look at the way you're living. Look at how you love people. And if you can examine the way you're objectively looking out to people and loving them, then that's going to also give you a, a, a for sure sense of whether you're saved or not. Um, now, let's talk about John. Let's talk about who he is um, and and give you a little background on on um, how he came about into the whole scene of Christianity. Um, he was a disciple of Jesus in Matthew 4. And I'm just going to kind of throw out some verses to you. And if you want to turn with me, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen. Um, in Matthew 4, Jesus is walking and he sees John, and then he calls him to be one of his disciples. He says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, um, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then it says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So this is just, Jesus is just walking and he sees a couple sets of brothers and he calls them and he walks up and he sees another set of brothers and he just calls them and they just, they leave their dad and they go follow Jesus immediately. And that's, all of a sudden John is a disciple following Christ everywhere. This is the same guy that writes. He was just a fisherman. Um, Then there's another place where uh, in John we get a picture of just how um, close John and Jesus had become in their friendship. Um, in the Last Supper, they were sitting there and they were reclining at the table and they were eating. Um, Jesus had just said that one of them was going to betray them. And this is what he says. In John 13, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The, son, uh, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, and look what it says here. This is verse 23. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table at the table close to Jesus. So what this means is um, they were eating. Uh, they were eating a meal. Jesus just said, "Somebody's going to somebody's going to den- deny me." And then as that's going on, um, it says that Je- John was a disciple that Jesus loved. Now John wrote this book, and he never ever, while he's writing this book calls himself by name. If you ever see the word John in the book of John, he's talking about John the Baptist. So he, in this book, he always refers, in, in his gospel, John, he always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved, over and over, this one that Jesus loved, or beloved disciple. So it says, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved um, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. The way they would sit is they would kind of sit in a circle, and they would kind of you know, lean in towards this and put their feet behind them and they would eat, you know, like this or whatever. Um, and so it says that basically John was here and that that John was so close that at one point in the in the gospel it says that his head was almost close to his chest. Um, that they were that 
deep of intimate friends that Jesus, when he had friends, especially these 12 disciples, they were very, very close. Um, and more than likely, um, over the whole gospel, we see that, that this one that, dis, that Jesus loved was given to John. So that means that um, we know, probably more so than the rest of the 12 disciples, but we don't know how to measure it exactly, um, that Jesus loved John. He had a deep affection of love for, for John. Um, some other unique things with, um, were that uh, John was at the cross whenever Jesus died. Um, all the other disciples were gone, but John was there. And look what happens. In jo- this is what in John chapter 19, it says that they're standing by the cross of Jesus. Um, and his mother was there and his sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And then Jesus um, saw his mother and, look, and in verse 26, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. So John was one of the only disciples there at the cross, um, watching his Savior die with Jesus, his mother. And look what Jesus says to him. Um, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So John was given the responsibility by Jesus to care for his mother. Um, that's how close of friends they were. That's how close John was to Jesus. Um, he actually was the one that took care of Jesus' mother after he died. He gave John that responsibility. Um, we also know that uh, from John chapter 21 and verse 20, there's a, there's a little conversation between Peter and Jesus. And Peter's kind of upset and he's saying, uh, you know, how come this guy's getting to go and you're telling me that I have to go do these things? And he starts asking, what about John? What about John? What's going to happen? And he says in verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Again, that designation given to John again. Saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him, which we just read in John 13, um, and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Talking about John. Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. And then it says, so the saying spread abroad, the, the brothers, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Um, we know from church history that all of the disciples were killed for their faith. Some were beheaded, some were hung upside down, some were just tortured and killed and beat. John, out of all of them, is the only one that actually lived to old age. God, in his sovereignty, gave the gift of a long life to John. Now, he still experienced suffering. He was boiled, boiled in, a, in, a, in an oil. I mean, he's, so he had this extremely um, disgusting kind of like skin, and, and he had a lot of suffering going on. But he lived. Um, he went on to live. And, and the last thing I want you to see, so he was the only disciple that actually got to live. The rest of them were all killed for their faith. But John was not martyred and got to die at an old age. Um, and, the, and the last thing is, is this. This is about John. This is from the last book. Um, John was given probably one of the most amazing gifts, which is that he got to, in some way, see physically what it's going to be like in heaven with Jesus. And, and he wrote the book of Revelation after he saw it. And he tried to communicate what he saw to us with the limited thing that he, we have called words. Um, because heaven is, is beyond what we can even explain with words. But I want to read um, one little passage from Revelation to you so that you can hear kind of what happened. Uh, this is Revelation 1, 16, and it says, In his right hand, John's describing what he sees when he talks about Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, um, came a, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like, the sh- was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, again, John is getting a picture of heaven, and all he has is, is first century words, and he's trying to say, it's like this. It's like this. And if we were trying to do that, we would do that in 21st century language. We would say it's, 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 it's like 
It's like this. And he's, do, he's doing his best. But that's why he says, um, his hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And look what it says um, when he, when he took, him in, took him in. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am the living one, and I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that, that are and those that are to take place after this. So he, he gets a picture of Jesus, and it's so glorious and it's so amazing that he falls down on his face like he's dead. It almost, it almost kills him. And Christ touches him and says, I need for you to go write these things down. So we have the book of Revelation as John. And, and it's got lots of interesting words and language in it from, from Revelation, but that's because he's just writing the best he can. It's like this. It's like this. Um, now, First John is a little bit different than the gospel. In the gospel, John tells us why he wrote the gospel. And if you've ever done any kind of study uh, in the gospel of John, um, I'm sure you've been referred to chapter 20, verse 31. Chapter 20, verse 31 in the gospel of John says, um, these things are written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing Him, you may have life in His name. So we know the Gospel of John was written to unbelievers so that they would believe in Jesus. That's what he desires. He wants those that are not Christians to hear these things, hear this Gospel about Jesus, and put their faith in Jesus. First John is kind of the continuation. Um, as John the Gospel was written to unbelievers, John's letter, First John, was written to believers. So he's wanting to address them, unbelievers and say, believe. Now he's wanting to address believers and say, persevere, have assurance. So 1 John was written um, so that they would have assurance and they would have a deeper faith. So it's written just to Christians. Now, certainly unbelievers are allowed to read 1 John. That's not what we're saying. But he wrote it to Christians with them in mind, exhorting them on in the faith so that they would have love, so they would have a deeper faith. So as we read this, we need to understand that he's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to Christians. Um, but why did he write 1 John? Well, he actually tells us several times in the letter of 1 John why he wrote, I write these things so that, I write these things so that. So we want to, um, we want to look at these. There's just a few of them in the letter of 1 John. And so, <clears throat> so you can see why he wrote this letter so that as we study, you're going to have a good idea what's going on. All right, first is in one four. He tells us, I write these things to you so that our joy may be complete. So one thing that he's wanting us to have is joy. He's wanting us to have a deep, lasting joy. Matthew um, 13, 44 tells us this um, about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to follow Christ. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So when you come to Christ, um, it's, there's, a, there's a level of joy that should be present. And so he's saying, and John, I'm writing these things so that your joy can be complete. We want you to have joy. The Christian life is to be one filled with joy. Um, I had a friend in seminary. Um, his name's Jeff. And uh, he had a uh, kind of a rough past before he came to Christ. His dad was actually um, and is a pastor but Jeff never really wanted any, any part of all that stuff. And so he would, he would spend his time, um, and I know this because Jeff told me his, his testimony is, is pretty amazing. He, he spent his time doing a lot of partying and a lot of drugs and, and those kind of things. And one day, um, he, had, he had had a night like that, and he was sobering up, and he came home, and he was just feeling down and out. And so he knew something was in him, and it was, it was the regeneration of the Holy Spirit driving him to the Scriptures for some reason um, because his dad was a pastor, so he grew up, knowing the, the church. And so he, he just flips open his Bible. And when he flips open his Bible, he goes straight to just the first thing he sees in, a, in almost a sobering, not ending the drunken and drug-filled stupor. He, he's ending that. He's just feeling like he, he's, he's done that scene for a while and he knows it's not right. And he's, he's searching and he's looking and he's, what is it that God wants? He flips open his Bible and the first verse he lays his eyes on is Psalm 4-7. For you have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. 
when they have everything they need and they have all that alcohol they want and they want to party and do it up and do it up and everything's going and it seems like they have so much fun going on, you have put more joy in my heart. And so he sees this verse and God uses Psalm 4-7 to help him see that Jesus is where we can find most of our joy, all of our joy, and, and not parting and not whatever. And from this verse, God regenerates his heart and he puts his faith in Christ. And he starts living for Christ. He's a, he's a pastor now, or an associate pastor. Um, one day probably will be a pastor. Um, but it's just amazing. So when we're talking about joy, um, that your joy may be complete, this is absolute. There's no doubt that God can do this. And it, it's going to be a unique situation in every person's heart. But John wants you to have joy. Um, another place is in two one. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things. And I'm just going to show you where he says I'm writing things because that's, where, that's how we know why he's writing. He tells us, I'm writing. I'm writing these things so that you too, um, I'm writing these things so, to you so that you may not sin. So another desire is that he, he wants Christians to not sin. Our deepest desire is that there should not be sin in our life. Um, so... That's another reason. All right, let's, let's go to chapter 2, verse 12 through 12 and 13. It says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then it just kind of says that same thing again um, in that next little part when it says children, fathers, and, and young men. Um, but basically... What he's telling us is that he's writing to little children, he's writing to fathers, he's writing young men, he's writing to all people, um, and all kinds of people. So this isn't just for a specific person in the church. This is for every believer. I'm writing to all of you, every one of you, that you'll hear my words and you'll want to start pursuing Christ. You'll want to kill sin in your life. You'll want to have assurance. You'll want to have love in your life. Um, Another place is in 221. um, He says, I write to you, um, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no no lie is of the truth. So, um, Christians know the truth. We have the word. And so, since we have the word, we shouldn't be deceived by things. We shouldn't be deceived by false doctrines, which we're going to talk about in just a second. I'm writing to you because you know the truth. And he says that in 2.26. Look at 2.26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. All right, so... We're going to talk about who's trying to deceive them in just a minute. They're called the Gnostics, um, which is a, kind of a whole other heading that I'm going to go after. But this is another reason, because he doesn't want them to be de- deceived, these Christians, by Gnostics who are bringing in a false doctrine. All right, and th- one more time, look over at 5.13. It says, I write these things to you. This is probably the most, one of the most clearest texts of Scripture that lets you know that you can have assurance of your salvation. 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. Um, so those are the reasons why. Now, as I said in 2.26, he's combating what's called the Gnostics. Now, this word Gnostic um, really comes from the word Gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. So the Gnostics are termed the knowing ones. Um, and what they believed, um, it's pretty detailed, but let me just kind of explain it to you as, as best as I can. Um, the Gnostics um, insisted that salvation is primarily through knowledge, that you're going you're gonna to be saved through knowledge. Um, and they said it's basically an initiation into the mystical and this superior knowledge that's kind of out there, and you, you know it by, by experiencing it. Um, now, they also, uh, they also did not believe or did not um, appreciate uh, or they, they hate and thought was evil flesh. You know, we're made up of flesh. And so they said, all flesh is evil. So since all flesh is evil, Jesus actually wasn't really a man. He couldn't have been a man because he would have had flesh. And if he had flesh, then he would be evil. And Jesus can't be evil. So Jesus was really just spirit. Um, and so they, 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 they believed heavily in the mystical and the spirit and the spirit levels. Um, so since salvation is only by knowledge and they think that the flesh is evil, morality 
is just ignored by them. It was completely ignored. Um, and they would kind of they would kind of go either way. They would either say, I don't sin anymore. Um, I, I just don't do that anymore. Or they would just do whatever they want when it came to sin because it's no big deal for them to sin because the flesh is, no, the flesh is evil and they know they have it and they can't stop. And so you're only saved through knowledge anyway. So they would kind of go either way. Um, now, they would, they would either insist that they had no sin or that they would continue sinning and insist that they even... As they sin, 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 as much as they wanted, that their relationship with God was still good. I, I want you to start thinking about. Um, all right, we're looking at a first-century heresy called the called Gnostics, and I want you to start thinking about today, and thinking about people that you know, or maybe yourself. Um, start thinking about contemporary Christianity, and think: Are there any comparisons or any relations to first-century Gnosticism and us? Um, first of all, they would continue sinning and insist that they had a great relationship with God. Um, they would think that they don't have any sin at all. They would say, yeah, I'm fine. I got nothing. I, I, I've had conversations with people sometimes um, that were Christians, and I'd say, well, what can I pray for you about? You know, we're doing some levels of accountability. What, what sin is there in your life? Tell me what's going on. Um, I don't know. Everything's pretty good. Everything's pretty good right now. Really? <laughs> Are you sure? Maybe it's um, pride right now that you need to need to confess, but um, I'm pretty sure you have some kind of sin right now. Oh, everything's good. So I think that there's probably hints and traces of Gnosticism in our in our lives today. Um, Gnosticism is still a, a very much a modern day thing, and we don't want to be it. But John knows that this is going on, and so he's writing to them and telling them. Don't be like this. And, and that's why you see over and over, I'm just going to give you a, a few verses where he addresses stuff like this. Um, 1 6, 1 8, uh, 1 10, 2 4, uh, when he says things like, um, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. 1 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 2.4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So he, there's, there's very similar verses. They all sound pretty much the same. Um, but he, he goes back to that throughout the book all the time because he is addressing these Gnostics who think that salvation is just by, by knowledge. All right, so that's, those are some of the reasons. Here's the last reason why he writes to us. Um, kind of big picture last reason. In his gospel... John wrote this in, in John thirteen thirty four, He wrote this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus gave this commandment to us. There's a new commandment that you're going to love. And John recorded that. And so he knows that there is a deep desire for us to uh, be loving people as Christians. Now... Jesus, um, when John heard this, it's something that I think is pretty interesting. I was thinking about it. Um, John heard those words, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, loved you, you are to also love one another. John heard those words before the crucifixion. He heard those words before Jesus died on the cross. And so as he hears that, he's like, okay, we should love one another. And then the greatest act of love is demonstrated to him as he stands there with his mother and watches Jesus die. So he writes this, um, saying, Jesus gave me this commandment, but then he also sees this crucifixion. And as he sees his friend, as he sees his, his Savior dying physically on the cross, um, there's a literal picture of what love is to look like, given to him by the cross. And so he's compelled to write this letter to exhort us to demonstrate this kind of love, this 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 love that was demonstrated by Christ to demonstrate this kind of love that we should be giving to other people. And I just want to kind of highlight some verses in 1 John where he talks about love. This is some of the things he says. Um, 2 5. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. So he's just going to over and over talk about love. In 2.15 he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. So don't love the world. In 3.10 he says, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not 
love his brother. 3.11 For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 3.18 Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Indeed, as it means in, in showing it with your works. Um, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is from, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4.21 And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Over and over and over and over and over. Exhortations to love one another. Um, I'm not sure. I've been thinking because I've just been studying First John here. Um, and really, um, over the last couple months, with some conversations with Cameron... Um, God is really taking first John and my conversations with Cameron and, and pushed me into new ways of thinking about how, um, love looks and how specifically just in my own heart, how unloving I really am. Um, I I think that I'm loving, but I'm really loving to the people that it's convenient to love at that time. Um, it's going to fit my schedule. I'm not going to really have to go out of my way. Um, I'm probably going to get some type of reciprocation from it. It's going to it's going to do me some good. Um, they're going to serve me in a way as I love them and as I help them out. It's going to help me out as well. Um, and I just started looking and seeing how selfish my love would be. And then I'm looking at First John and Cameron. Just the way he's talking, he didn't even know he was doing it, but it's just the way he was challenging some of the things he was saying about how, the way he wants to live. I was like, wow. I'm reading this and I'm seeing that um, my picture of love is not necessarily the most biblical picture of love. God isn't just calling us to love the convenient. God isn't just calling us to love it when it's going to fit our schedule. Um, Over and over, and we're going to be challenged by this for the next um, few months as we go through 1 John God is is challenging us to put on display the love that was put on display for us by the cross. He displayed love by the cross. Romans 5.8 says that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't like we were these lovely, great people. And then he said, oh, they're so beautiful. That's the people I want to go love and spend my time with and hang out with. Um, We were far. We were wretchedly sinful and he came if that's our picture and we see over and over there's an exhortation that we're supposed to love our brothers we're supposed to love others we're supposed to love 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 um how should your love change who is it that you find easy to love who is it that you don't find easy to love don't say those out loud um, <laughs> and maybe God is, is calling you or challenging you to examine your heart and start asking the hard questions. Am I really only loving people that are convenient? Am I really only loving people that are going to give me something in return? Or am I being Christ-like with my love and loving everyone? That's why I was saying we want to, in the beginning, I want to start thinking of ourselves as a church family. Because in the family, you know, Uncle Bob, who always smells bad and cusses all the time and gets drunk at the party, still has to come. He still has to come. He's part of the family. So as a family, whenever, and hopefully you don't have an Uncle Bob like that, um, but as, as a family, whenever you're going somewhere, um, you need to invite those here. You need to always be building into the family. Don't just see each other on Sunday mornings in community groups. When you're a family, you spend time around each other. You, you, you plan new ways um, to be around each other. And, and I've just, um, I've felt this from you 
And so I want to say that we, we're not we're not wretched or anything. I have felt this from you with I think we're doing pretty well in, in, in some areas. Um, you know, we just had our fourth child. It's insane. And y'all have been bringing meals to me now for a couple weeks. So um, I appreciate it. And so there are expressions of love that I see. And I just want to say, keep doing that. Finding people here in the church, um, getting their number, getting to know them, have the conversation with them. Not the same three people you talk to every time. Be, be loving to every person. Get to know them. And then go out to dinner with them. Buy them some coffee. Ask them their story. Things like that. Um, find what their needs are. Maybe try, to, maybe try to meet their needs. Maybe try to find people that can meet their needs. Um, we as Christians, those that follow Christ, should be the most loving people. We should be the most loving people. We as Christians, ones who follow Christ, should be the ones that show love and not expect something in return rather than expecting something in return and listen I'm, I'm guilty here too i'm guilty here too so let's let's work on that together um so that's kind of the last thing that he he's talking about so an overall summary here of first john is this um and i just kind of wrote this out if one is a true christian if one is a true christian he will not keep living like the world He'll not keep living like the world. If he does, he's a liar. That's chapters 1 and 2. Um, either we evidence the sound doctrine and the obedience and the love that characterizes Christians, or else we're not true Christians. I'll say it again. Either we evidence the sound doctrine, because he, he's addressing the Gnostics and he's wanting them to know what true doctrine is. So there is a sense where he wants us to have right doctrine. That we, either we evidence sound doctrine obedience that we that we obey what he says and love that characterizes christians we must have those things in our lives or else we're not true christians um but but you still are going to sin in this life you're still going to sin in this life there's you, you will not reach perfectionism um and so when you sin whenever you sin there's some things you need to know and two one um, it says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And one nine says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So um, we're supposed to characterize those things. But when we sin, when we sin, because it's going to happen, two things. One, we have an advocate with the Father. He is, by the Father, advocating for us continually. That one's mine, Father, don't I, my blood was purchased for them. I, I, I bought them. That sin right there covered by the cross continually. All the sins you're doing. We have an advocate with the Father. That's what's going on in heaven. In verse 1, 9. But we still confess and repent. When we sin, we still confess and repent. All of the Christian life is one of confession and repentance. That confession and repentance is not earning your salvation. We, we have a, a time where we put our faith in Christ salvifically for our justification. But as we go through sanctification, as we go through the process of becoming more Christ-like, we're always confessing and repenting. We're always confessing and repenting. We're gonna, here's another sin. That is it. Thank you for covering that on the cross. I repent. Lord, help me by the power of your spirit put to death that sin and live in victory and not see that in my life. Over and over. It's all, that's, that's our life. But that's not, it's not arduous. That's not, it's not terrible because we have an advocate. We have someone who died for us. So, when you sin in this life, you have an advocate and you confess and repent. Now, this may call, con, cause confusion if you're a believer. This may cause confusion. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Am I not saved? But you can know for sure that you are a believer. You can know for sure. That's what 5.14 tells us. Um, specifically, you know that you're a believer when this is happen happening. When your life is marked with, number one, with love. That's chapters 2 and 4, basically. And, and even really in 3. That your life is marked with love. That you're practicing righteousness. That's chapter 3. That you're practicing righteousness. And that you're abiding. That's chapter 3. That you're abiding with Christ, that He is your deepest joy. He is the one that you want to be with more than any other, anybody else. Now, there. Are, this is uh, this is where I'm going to close. There are kind of um, 
two extremes that this book can be accused of espousing. Two extremes. One is perfectionism. Um, that you actually can attain perfection here. Because um, it says, um, if we say we have no sin, uh, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But um, whoever says, if you keep on sinning, then you're not with Christ. So there's this, there's this sense where stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning. You can reach perfectionism. You don't have to keep sinning. So one thing is that people can say, well, you're supposed to just be perfect. Well, <laughs> we know that. I mean, some people actually, I've heard stories. I've never actually met someone, but I've heard stories that, where people say, I haven't sinned in 10 years. Wow. Um, okay. Paul Washer says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he goes, and you have never done that. And so um, he gets kind of passionate. So, um, of course, we, we never will reach perfectionism because we can't keep the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've never done that. We've never loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, so we can't reach perfectionism. Um, so that's one extreme that this thing can have. But the other is that you can lose your salvation. Some people say you can lose your salvation. Um, that this is saying that. And he answers both of these. Um, John answers both of these extremes in the book. The, the idea that, that you can be perfect when he says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he answers that you can't reach perfectionism. We know that we're going to keep sinning. And the idea that you can lose your salvation, he answers also in 2.19, where he says, they went out from us, but if they were not of us, um, for they ha- if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So there is an idea that they left because they weren't with us. But there are ones that stay. There are ones that stay here that don't lose. They, they come to Christ and they can stay in Christ and they don't leave. That they won't lose their salvation just because of sin. Um, so just to conclude here, a couple things. Number one, are you finding yourself like a modern day Gnostic? Are you finding yourself so comfortable with sin that it's no big deal to you? Or maybe thinking that you don't even have any. More than likely, it might be the first. That we're so comfortable with sin that it doesn't even bother us anymore. I don't know what it is. But you should not be patient with yourself in regard to that sin. You should desire to put it to death. See it as God sees it and want it dead. Or perhaps um, you, you've looked at your life, like I was saying, as I've read this book, and you see that you, the love that you give to other people is always conditional. And I just don't think that's, that's, that's what we're called towards. We're not called to love people with conditions. We're not called to just love the easy. We're not called to just love the good-looking um, we're called to love everyone. We're called to love everyone. Um, the last thing I just want to challenge you with is this. Um, is that we're going, to, we're going to memorize. Now, whenever we're going through this, we talked about this for a long time, about memorizing. And my first idea is let's just, let's just give them one piece of paper and they're just going to memorize the whole book at once. We're all just going to, we're not going to even do like... Two weeks. We're just going to say, everybody's doing it. Come on. And they're like, well, that's, that's, a, little, that's a little much. Like, you're like, first John. You know, so we decided not to do that. We decided to break it down into easy chunks. Um, but the reason why I really want to encourage all of you to go after plan A, is, if it's possible. Now, I know my wife won't. But um, for those of you that can, that can, that really have the ability to go after plan A and memorize, I want all of you to try. Um, one of the discussions we were having is that's a lot i mean that's a whole lot to to say we as a church are going to memorize the book of first john but i've never ever wanted to lower the bar i think that i think that it's just too easy i think churches make it too easy um i don't want to be the kind of church that just dumbs down the faith doesn't call you up 
to hard things, doesn't challenge you to hard things. And so um, it may be that you could memorize the whole book of 1 John. And I, I want you to do it. Um, I want you to try with me um, and with the church here to memorize this book of 1 John. Um, and so if you're hearing this and you're like, there's no way I'm even try that. Um, maybe. Maybe you have a disinterest in the Word of God that that's not healthy. Maybe you should maybe you should repent from that. Maybe you should repent from sin. Maybe you should repent from love. Maybe you should repent from just a, a lack of interest in the Word of God. So we're going to go into a. Uh, time of worship. But um, what I want to close with is just a, uh, a video here that's, that's going to... Um, the Bible's going to give us some, some verses in this video about itself. And as we see what the Bible says about itself, um, hopefully it'll challenge you to want to know the Bible and memorize the Bible and, and memorize the Scriptures with us. And after that, we'll stand and worship. Um, and during our time of worship, maybe... You want to take a couple minutes to uh, think and pray during the first first song or so. Maybe you want to just read uh, some in First John and, and think through where you might need to confess and repent, or maybe you just want to stand and, and give praise to God and, and sing out how glorious He is to us. Um, however, the Spirit's leading to you, I just ask that you would be obedient to that, um, and then we'll 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 do some more stuff after that. So let me pray, and then we'll go into our our time of worship. Lord, we uh, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for this letter. And I pray that as we go into it and as we study, God, that we would really examine our lives. That we would see whether we are too comfortable with sin. We would see whether we are unloving people. God, that we would just really uh, examine our hearts and see whether we truly want to know your word deeply. And I pray, Lord, that as we examine our hearts and where there's places that aren't being obedient, that we would confess those to you and that we would repent and start walking with you, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.